Well, you're doing well. You got that Lance Ritchie part there at the end. That, that just destroyed everything. <laughs> oh, I love, <laughs> I love my brother-in-law very much, and our sister-in-law Vivian. We love them dearly. I appreciate that very kind introduction, Charles and uh, Janice, and I have talked about uh, how blessed we are to have an opportunity to. Uh, fill in today and to be with you because it's been so long since we've had an opportunity to be at Saudi and uh, we go back such a long way with this great congregation. You all have supported us in so many ways over the years, uh, back with Truth for the World days, uh, then of course GBN and, and now Good News Today, you continue that financial support but also your prayers and your uh, encouragement. Uh, you helped us to go back to Malaysia uh, back in 2017 to help finance that trip where we had uh, spent time and hadn't been back, uh, Janice hadn't, in 33 years. For me, 30, I was able to go back a little bit one time before she did. We went back to Singapore for the lectureship there, gospel meeting where we used to live and work in Klang, Malaysia, and you helped us to be able to do that. You all have just been so generous over the years, not only to the works in which we've been blessed to be involved, but to so many other good works. And of course, with Bill and Sylvia, we go back a long, long way with them, love them dearly. And with your current uh, pulpit uh, preacher, Joel Danley, and his great family, and of course, uh, uh, Hannah's dad, Freddie Clayton, is our very fine, faithful gospel preacher at Dunlap, where we're blessed to worship, and, and uh, they have the oversight of good news today. Uh, just to briefly tell you that uh, your support over the years and especially the support of Good News Today has, has produced so many good things along with other congregations and uh, we've been greatly blessed. At the end of this year, I'm going to kind of change gears a little bit and no longer be hosting the program. I'll be doing some one-minute segments from time to time, but uh, kind of semi-retiring at least from that aspect of the work, but still being involved. But Mark Teske, who worked for years with the Gospel Broadcasting Network after I had left the network, and who worked in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with the Truth and Love program, producing that program, so much experience and talent. He's a graduate of the Brown Trail School of Preaching, graduated as the most outstanding student in his class, has preached the gospel for many years, has a great technolo uh, technological knowledge that I uh, don't have and don't plan to start trying to have, not at my age, but uh, he brings so much to the work and he will, uh, he is already working full-time with us and he'll full-time take over the full-time hosting uh, of the program beginning next year and uh, will continue to live in the Olive Branch, Memphis area, but travel here regularly, and then you can do so much by remote areas now uh, with the technology we have, that he'll do a great work. Uh, Charles mentioned the uh, GBN and, of course, how blessed we were to work with my friend who was closer than a brother, Barry Sr., uh, for so many years. And he had the concept of the magazine format of Good News Today, and it began as the flagship program of the Gospel Broadcasting Network. And just recently, last week in Dunlap, we produced programs number 1,369 through 1,372. I get tired just saying that, actually. <laughs> but uh, but uh, he'll continue to do a great work with that, and the program continues now, not as a part of GBN, separate but cooperative work, but, uh, but uh, a work nonetheless that had its beginning uh, because of the uh, great dream 
that Barry Gilry Sr. had not only for that program but for the Gospel Broadcasting Network. But I'm delighted and privileged and honored to be here with you today and um, uh, it's uh, such a joy to see so many we've known over the years and, uh, and to meet others uh, whom we have not had the privilege of meeting. As we begin our lesson this morning, I want to begin by asking a question, and it's really a question about the world's most important question. Uh, what would you consider to be the world's most important question? I would hope you would say it is the question that was asked as we read it in Scripture from time to time, what must I do to be saved, or words to that effect. We see it first asked in regard to the gospel on the day of Pentecost, of course, in Acts chapter 2, near the culmination of a portion of Peter's sermon there. When he, when he uh, said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, pricked in the heart, as the King James says, cut to the heart, as the New King James says, and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? That is the world's greatest question, because the implication there is, what shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to be relieved of the guilt of which you have just convicted us of convicting and crucifying the very Son of God himself? And of course, the answer that came forth from Peter, and as was consistently given by the other apostles on that occasion, repent. He didn't say believe because they already expressed their faith, but he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The text goes on to tell us that with many other words he testified and exhorted, saying, save yourselves from this crooked or perverse generation, and verse 41 says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Now, the question was also asked a bit later in Acts chapter 16, in that uh, great scene that took place after the earthquake that occurred around midnight in the jail there where uh, Paul and Silas had found themselves and were singing praises to God. And that earthquake occurred and the doors of the prison cells were opened and the jailer, assuming that the prisoners had escaped, was about to take his own life, knowing that Roman law said that he would have to be uh, executed for allowing the prisoners to escape. But Paul stopped him, of course, as you recall, I'm sure, and said, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And then he called for a light and sprang in and asked that world's most important question, what must I do to be saved? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, in this case, they had, to believe, they had to begin at the beginning with this man because he said, believe. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your house. And then they spoke to him the word of the Lord. And, of course, the culmination was in his conversion along with those of his household. So the answer to the world's greatest question has always been the same in Scripture. From the time the question was first asked in regard to the gospel dispensation, the beginning of Christianity. And what is that answer? Well, we must hear, of course. We must hear the truth. We must believe. We must repent according to the totality of Scripture. We must confess that Jesus is the Christ. And then there's one final culminating step, and that is this. You must be sprinkled. I think I heard a collective gasp. 
but I am going to prove to you before this lesson is over that what I have just said is absolutely true and that there can be no denying it and that the scriptures make it abundantly clear. But the reason I saw shaking heads was because you think of water when I say sprinkled. But I'm not talking about water, I'm talking about the blood about which we have sung already and about which we will sing when the Lord's invitation is extended in just a few moments. You see, there is a sprinkling of blood in scripture from Old Testament to New that is absolutely clearly set forth and without which in this dispensation, the final dispensation of time, without that sprinkling of blood, there can be no hope for anyone for salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, is there? I don't know of a faith-only advocate anywhere in the denominational world that would deny that one can be saved without the blood of Christ. I think everyone would agree who claims to be a Christian today that we must have the blood of Christ and that had the blood of Christ not been shed, there could be no possibility of our salvation. Hebrews 9.22 declares, and according to the law, almost all things are cleansed or purged with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. No remission. But the same Hebrews writer, a few verses earlier in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, wrote this, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, the Hebrews writer, as he does throughout that Hebrews epistle, contrasts the blood of the old covenant and the blood of bulls and goats with the blood that was shed under the new covenant, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. How much more shall the blood of Christ, he asked, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But there's another passage that's critical to us here in this Hebrews epistle along these same lines of the sprinkling concept that is absolutely essential. And that's over in chapter 12 of Hebrews. I encourage you to turn there to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading at verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12. And here the setting is this. The Hebrews writer is reminding these Christians of Jewish background that they have come to a far better place, if you will, to a far better situation than those under the old covenant. You remember under the old covenant and the beginning of that covenant, we'll talk more about it in just a moment, there was a tremendous scene that took place at Mount Sinai when that covenant was first sealed with the blood, as we'll see in a moment, of animals. But now the Hebrews writer is reminding these Jewish Christians, you've come to a better place. Now why was he reminding them of this? What was the necessity of his doing so? Because they were being seduced, if you will, by Judaizing teachers to give up their Christianity and to go back under the law of Moses. And the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews is written to try to keep that from occurring. And in so doing, 
the Hebrews writer is contrasting the new law with the old. And the key word in the book of Hebrews is better. Better. You're under a better covenant. Please do not sacrifice that. Please do not go back to that old law, which cannot possibly take away sin. So with that in mind, he continues that theme here in verse 18, beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews. And he reminds them of this. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that's Mount Sinai, and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. It was such an awesome scene he's depicting. And then he quotes, if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. He's depicting the scene that took place at Mount Sinai when the law of Moses was brought into effect with the people. Now notice the contrast, though, beginning in verse 22. You haven't come to that place. Here's where you are. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about the church, isn't he? To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. That's plural. The church of the firstborn ones, those who have been firstborn in effect, who are registered in heaven. Where else had they come? To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now look at verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You have come to the blood of sprinkling. He's saying you've been sprinkled by the blood. It's exactly what he's saying. And it's interesting here, he calls it the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now there are commentators, and I don't fall out with them, there are commentators who will, who will say that's the blood that Abel shed when he died and was killed by his brother. And that's certainly a plausible uh, concept, but I personally think that he's speaking here not of the blood that Abel shed when he died as a result of being killed by his brother, but the blood that Abel offered in Genesis chapter 4 when he offered the blood sacrifice, the first blood sacrifice in Genesis chapter 4, a sacrifice that was accepted by God while Cain's was rejected because it was not a blood sacrifice. And as effective as that was at that time, it does not compare to the blood of Jesus Christ, which has now been shed for the sins of mankind. But notice he calls it the blood of sprinkling. Now, what about the sprinkling of blood under the Old Testament? Go back with me to Leviticus chapter 16. And in Leviticus chapter 16, you have the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for himself and for all the people. And there were two goats, you may remember, that were involved in that process. One was called the scapegoat. The other goat was killed and its blood was sprinkled. And Leviticus 16 speaks of the sprinkling of that blood 
But the, but the other goat, the scapegoat, he laid his hands on the head of that goat and sent him off into the wilderness as if to carry away the sins of God's people until the next day of atonement because sins were not absolutely forgiven because that blood could not absolutely forgive. That forgiveness occurred on credit, if you will, looking forward to the time when the blood of Christ would ultimately be shed. And when the blood of Christ was shed, it cleansed those under that old covenant that were faithful to God under every dispensation and continues to cleanse the sins of all mankind who will come to God through Christ today. But in Leviticus 16 and verse, uh, uh, and verse 13, beginning... Or verse 14, he says, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. There's an incidence of the sprinkling of the blood of the animals under the old covenant as a part of what? The atonement for the people, the day of atonement. So we see clearly that the sprinkling concept to which the Hebrews writer refers in Hebrews 12 24 was a concept that was known to the people of God under the old covenant but then let's go back to Exodus chapter 24 and in Exodus chapter 24 here you have that scene that was being described by the Hebrews writer in the passage we read a few moments ago in Hebrews 12 that scene that awesome scene at Mount Sinai when all of these things occurred and when the covenant was first established, the old covenant with God's people. Listen to verses, or look at verses 5 through 8. This is Moses. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do, and be obedient. Now notice verse 8. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. He sprinkled the blood on the people. But that was the blood of animals. That was the blood that could not ultimately take away, completely forgive the sins. It only pointed to another sprinkling of blood. And that was the blood of Jesus Christ. But do we read anything else in the New Testament other than the passage we've noticed in Hebrews 12, 24 about the sprinkling of blood? Oh, indeed we do. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter addresses these particular pilgrims, as he calls them, in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, how does he refer to them in verse 2? He calls them the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He's not talking about predestination of individual people. He's talking about a certain class of people that were predetermined to be saved. Who? Anyone who would obey the gospel. That's who's been elected or predetermined, only those who obey the gospel, not on an individual basis, as Calvinism teaches. But elect according to the foreknowledge of God, but how do they become the elect? 
He then tells us how they become or became the elect, in this case, because he's writing to Christians, in sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, being set apart. Sanctified by what? By the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And what? For obedience and what? Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter describes how these people to whom he's writing, Christians, how these Christians became Christians. They did so according to the teaching of the Spirit. If you're a Christian this morning, you became a Christian according to the teaching of the Spirit. You were sanctified by the Spirit, not in some direct miraculous way, as some erroneously contend, but by this book given to you by the Holy Spirit. The only way you can know how to be sanctified by the Spirit is by obeying what the Spirit has revealed in His Word for obedience and what happened in that process. Sprinkling. The sprinkling of the blood, he says, of Jesus Christ. Can there be then any doubt whatsoever that you must be sprinkled? I have proved my point that you must be sprinkled. But tragically, so many people, when they think of sprinkling, they think of water and some mode of baptism called sprinkling, other modes called pouring, and a mode called immersion. There are no modes of baptism. The Bible knows nothing about modes, plural, of baptism. It just knows about one, and that is the burial in water. But... But that brings us to the when and the how of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. If we must contact the blood of Christ, and it's called the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, when and how, or do we have any passage whatsoever in the New Testament that gives us the when and the how of the application of that blood? When it's sprinkled, in other words, from heaven as it were, to cleanse us from sin. Oh yes, we have a passage that is Ungetoverable, as the late N.B. Hardiman used to say. Ungetoverable. And it is Hebrews, again, this time chapter 10 and verse 22. And what does the Hebrews writer admonish these Christians to whom he is writing to do now? In Hebrews 10, 22, he writes, But let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That passage is ungetoverable as to what it tells us about the when and the how of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a passage that tells us that when you are buried in water based upon a belief that has led you to repent of your sins, to confess sweetly the name of Christ, when you are then buried in that water, your body is washed with water, but your heart is sprinkled from an evil conscience by the blood of Christ applied from heaven itself. And if you try to separate the application of the blood from the burial of the body you can't do it Hebrews 10 won't let you do it why not because notice he says let us draw near draw near to whom to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith when can we do that the next phrase tells us 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That word having is in the perfect tense. It means having had our bodies washed with pure water and our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And when both those things have occurred simultaneously, then and only then can we draw near to God. The faith-only advocates tell us we can draw near to God before we're ever buried in water. This passage absolutely denies it. Two things are necessary before you can draw near to God. One is the burial in water. The other is the sprinkling of the blood, but they both occur, according to Hebrews 10.22, at the very same time. And then you couple that with a passage like Acts 22.16. You tie Hebrews 10.22 to Acts 22.16, where on the occasion where Ananias was sent to a penitent Saul of Tarsus, who later would become the great apostle Paul and was told to tell him what he must do to be saved, he told him to do what? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is a participle which describes the very process by which he would call on the Lord by getting up and getting into the baptistry, as it were, and being washed in that blood that would be sprinkled there as that figure is used as we've shown already and thus arising to walk in newness of life. Draw near to God with the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience with the blood of Christ as our body is washed in pure water. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. How? In the blood of Christ as your body is washed with pure water. That's what Ananias told Saul of Tarsus to do, and that's what we see consistently done by everyone who was converted throughout the great book of Acts, the book of conversions. It's a tragedy beyond description that so many in the religious world this morning deny the essentiality of that final, absolutely essential step by which we enter Christ and are added to his church, and that is baptism because it is in baptism that the blood is sprinkled, as it were, from heaven itself, the only substance that can possibly take away our sins. I have in my library a little paperback New Testament that I was given by a brother in Christ who uses it to talk to folks about their soul salvation, but he uses it to point out how much error there is in the religious world on a subject that should be so clear to us. And this little New Testament is called the Soul Winner's Edition. The Soul Winner's Edition of the New Testament. And it gives a so-called plan of salvation. But it's not the Soul Winner's Edition, I guarantee you. It's tragic as to what it leaves out and what it purports to be the saving message of the gospel. And in one of the notes in the back of this little soul winner, so-called soul winner's New Testament, under the heading, saved after three days, or after three days of being saved, he has this statement, paraphrasing. Saul of Tarsus was saved in root to Damascus. Saul of Tarsus was saved 
en route to Damascus. And the heading is something like three days after being saved. He has gone into Damascus. He's three days without sight, he says. And then he quotes a portion of Acts 9.17 in his comments and then Acts 22.16 and puts the two together. And the first part of Acts 9.17, he quotes, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And then he adds the part of Acts 22.16, arise and be baptized, period. And that's where he stops his note. Brother Saul, receive your sight. Why did he put Brother Saul in there? Probably because he's affirming that Saul was a brother in Christ at that point in time. He was not. Did Ananias say in Acts 9, 17, as it's recorded, Brother Saul, he did. But what kind of brother was he calling him? A fellow Jew. He was calling him a brother Israelite, a term that is clearly used elsewhere by Paul himself in the Romans epistle, for example, when he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He's talking about their zeal for God. Brethren, my heart's desire. But you go back to Romans chapter 9 and the beginning of that chapter, and he makes it abundantly clear as to how the word brethren is used by him as it was used by Ananias when he addressed Saul. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites. That's the way Brother Saul was used by Ananias because he was a fellow Jew. He was not calling him a brother in Christ. And in Acts twenty-two sixteen, as this writer in his notes declares, he did not simply say to Saul of Tarsus, arise and be baptized, period. He said, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord in so doing. It's tragic indeed. And I don't know and I don't judge the man's motive as to why he didn't finish the verse in his quotation. But I have a pretty good idea of perhaps why he didn't because it would have conflicted with everything he had tried to contend for concerning how one is saved from sin. And so we get back to the proposition with which we began. What is the answer to the world's greatest question? What must I do to be saved? You must hear, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ or die in your sins, John 8, 24, as Jesus said. You must repent or perish as Jesus declared in Luke 13, 3 and again at verse 5. You must confess from the heart that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you must be sprinkled. And don't gasp this time. Because you must be sprinkled as long as we understand that we're talking about the blood of Christ and that that blood is sprinkled as the scriptures depict it when your body is buried and only when it's buried in water for the forgiveness of your sins.
you haven't done that this morning, we plead with you to do it based upon your understanding of the clear teaching of Scripture. And if you've done it, but you have wandered from your first love and are no longer serving as you once served, and that's known publicly and you need to respond publicly to make it right with your brothers and sisters in Christ as well as with the God of heaven, we encourage you to come home as we stand together to sing.